Listening to the IRE Radio podcast, IRE with you on your beat for 40 years. I'm Sean Shinneman, and this week's story takes us to Benjina, Indonesia, a small fishing island that, until recently, was home to hundreds of slaves. I basically got my first initial information from the prostitutes that would tell me just basically how many men, how many of their customers were these Burmese fishermen, and it was just these huge numbers. So, so you did get a sense of the scale of of the business. That was Robin McDowell, one of the three Associated Press reporters I talked to about this massive investigation into slave cost seafood. The things they uncovered are disturbing, to say the least. The seafood, so highly prized that this Thai company found it worth it to beat and enslave hundreds of men. Well, some of it's going to America's largest grocery stores, pet food companies, and restaurants. The AP team tracked the seafood back to the states using everything from satellites to surveillance to stops by the local grocer. One time I was with a bunch of um, fifth graders. I was driving a field trip, and I uh, stopped at Walmart, and we, we crowdsourced. I had them all get out of the car and put the seafood with me for a little bit. Coming up on the podcast, we're going behind the story with Robin, Martha Mendoza, whose voice you just heard, and Margie Mason, to learn how reporters working from the U.S., Indonesia, and Myanmar exposed a massive case of modern-day slavery and emancipated, so far, more than 300 men. In the early days of the Associated Press investigation that would eventually free hundreds of slaves from the secluded island called Benjina, the reporters wondered whether the story they envisioned was even doable. We were told repeatedly, look, you guys are after the Holy Grail. Other journalists have tried what you're trying to do, and they've failed. They've just given up because it's too hard. The companies are not just out in the open. And there are shell companies, there are fake documents, there, it's just, it's just really, really difficult. That's Margie Mason, an AP reporter based in Jakarta, Indonesia. Last year, she'd been reporting stories on human rights with Robin McDowell. And here's Robin, who's based in the AP's Myanmar Bureau. But I kind of like that, that bumpy road of democracy and also the opportunity to look back at kind of the darker past. You know, the doors are just opening up and people are just starting to talk. Um, and obviously that's the same in Myanmar as well. So the two had been reporting these other human rights stories, but they'd heard enough about how labor was handled by some Thai fishing companies that they decided to dive in. From the very beginning, our, our idea was if we were going to do this story, if we were really going to do it, we wanted to go all the way with it. That meant tying the seafood back to the U.S. We wanted to connect it back, and we wanted it to be rock solid, and we wanted to name names. During a year of investigating, the AP talked to more than 40 current or former slaves. Robin spent days in Benjina, aided by the help of a Burmese-speaking correspondent. I guess I should note here that the slaves were mainly of Burmese descent, tricked onto the island, or outright kidnapped, and then worked for 22-hour days for almost no pay. 
Some of them were kept behind bars in what were essentially cages with concrete floors. During the tracking phase of the reporting, Robin and Margie hid out for four straight nights in a cramped truck. That's a good story, which we'll get into later. And from the U.S., Martha Mendoza, the story's third name on the byline, tracked down government officials at this giant Boston seafood show, where she was altogether just not very welcome. We'll start our story with Robin, who I talked to late at night, which for her was the next morning. Robin is based in the AP's Myanmar Bureau, in the city of Yangon. She works with a handful of other journalists, photographers, videographers, and such. It's a full-service bureau. What's it look like outside your window? It looks really sunny and hot already. Um, I'm very, I'm right across from the park, so there's big fountains going off. It's really nice, and um, right next to the Sule Pagoda as well, I can kind of see a sliver of that in the heart of Yangon, like near the city hall and near some of the big, a big hospital. It's, it's a nice, it's a nice area actually, close to the river. Robin and Margie learned about Benjina through a ton of networking. The small island is part of Indonesia, but it's secluded. North of Australia, and sort of southwest of Papua. We'd found uh, a, a source, and, and they were telling us uh, from a group that they had been um, to this area of Indonesia, and that there were a lot of, um, there, there appeared to be a lot of guys there. That came after about a year of, of, you know, networking and scrolling the internet. Um, the same sources that were telling us about about some of the Rohingya. Oh yeah, the human rights stories these two had been reporting on were about the Rohingya. The story might sound familiar to you. It's been in the news a lot lately. Okay, back to Robin. Mentioned that they were starting to hear cases of um, migrant workers and slaves showing up in eastern Indonesia and and hearing kind of the same horrific stories that we've been hearing in Thailand. But obviously now they're being pushed, you know, as the spotlight was being put on Thailand and the Thai waters, they're being pushed further and further out to sea. So they wanted to, um, they wanted to do another trip back to this one island that they had heard stories about. And, um, and so Robin was able to go with them. We asked if we could go along, and they said yes, and she accompanied them. And I think none of us expected to find a slave island, but that's what we found. So Robin headed to Benjina, amassing 24 hours of travel by air and sea from Yangon. When she got there, she made it a point to split off from the photographer and videographer, who were being ushered around and closely followed by a group of government minders. But things still started somewhat slowly. Robin doesn't speak Burmese, for one thing. The factory, and therefore all the fishermen, were on the other side of this little waterway from the rest of the village. Every once in a while, when the trawlers were docked, the fishermen were free to wander across to the other side. I basically got my first initial information from the prostitutes that would tell me just basically how many men, how many of their customers were these Burmese fishermen, and it was just these huge numbers, so, so you did get a sense of the scale of, of the business and, and the, the, you know, the traffic around there. Maybe a dumb question, but how, how were they paying for that? Well, most of these guys did get paid, you know, like basically pocket money or things to buy food, 
cigarettes, um, you know, whatever. This was maybe 20 or $30 a month, depending on who was handing it out. Sometimes the captains might be generous and give out more, like 100 or $150. While she tried to work her way closer, Robin's first few days on the island were spent at a distance. She talked to former slaves who'd escaped, but some of them had been away for five or ten years, so the information had to be taken with a grain of salt. She also, in this time, was taken to a cemetery. You could see the blue and the white and the green markers from the water, but when you actually got there, it was just, it was pretty horrific. It was, you know, just completely covered by weeds. The bodies were practically buried on top of one another. Robin met a former Burmese slave, and he showed her around the cemetery, pointing out places he'd buried his Burmese friends. But they all had the Thai names on them, so the fake names that were in their, in their you know, falsified seafarer documents. Right. So it was really just, you know, like it should have been, it should, like, now I feel incredibly sad when I think about it, but at that moment I, I just felt so pissed off. I just felt like this is, this is such a huge cover-up. Um, even in death, they're going to they're gonna try to pull this over, you know. Right. Um, but, but I still felt like we didn't have enough, that, that there was so much more just beneath the surface. For help, the AP flew in Esther Tucson, a local journalist who speaks Burmese. And on the first night she was there, Robin took her around to sort of retrace her steps. At the end of the night, they were headed back home, or what was home for them while they were there, which was a local villager's home. But as they passed a local karaoke bar, Esther recognized Burmese music. Her face just lit up like, oh my gosh, that's, that's Burmese music, that's Burmese music. Esther called into the bar. Are you guys Burmese? And people started rushing out. And really from that moment, it just, the doors just swung open. They all were so desperate to tell their stories. Um, as soon as they realized she was a journalist and she was there to tell their stories and to get it out to the outside world, they just, you know, they, they could not wait to meet us. And we would just, any place we'd go, they'd be chasing after us with little, you know, um, scribbling down the names of family members and where they lived in Burma, saying, please, just tell them, that, tell them that we're alive. The next day, um, we were going to some of the, the, some of the coastal villages, and we saw one of the fishing trawlers heading into port from the sea. Um, so we were in that little boat with Eddie, the local boatman, and asked him to get as close as we could to that boat, and he pulled up and you know, from a distance, we could film that boat going into port. And then um, it was already starting to, it was nearing sunset already. In an hour or two, the sun was almost completely down. And we could, we felt like we could get up close enough to the boat without being seen by the captain who was who was apparently on the other side of the ship. But, you know, like when they pull in, they're, busy, they're very busy with everything. So those guys were kind of leaning over, smoking and talking. Um, two at first, um, and Esther called up and she said, you know, are you Burmese, are you Burmese? And at first they kind of were joking and playful and, and kind of even a little flirtatious. 
But then she said, "We're um, stop, you know, stop joking around. I'm here to tell your story. I'm an American journalist. And they just got, you know, suddenly really serious. There were two guys hanging over the railing at first, backlit by the fluorescent lights of the trawler. Then another showed up, and another, and then another, and another. Pretty soon there were about 10 or 12 guys, and they're all calling over the edge, telling their stories, and, you know, like, basically that their parents thought they were dead, that, you know, what how they've been treated by the captain, really taking tremendous risks considering their abuser was right around the corner. What was that moment like for you? Could you understand what they were saying at all? Um, I could I could understand very little, but mostly from the... Uh, it, it was very easy to feel what was going on right there. After that night, Robin says she knew they had something big. And considering all that this Thai company had to lose from this story, they'd done a pretty good job avoiding things getting terribly tense with management. But they'd been given a final warning not to come back on factory grounds, which were private grounds, of course. They pushed it on that final night, knowing that they'd be leaving Benjina at 3 or 4 in the morning. They were watching the operation from a boat when they were spotted. One or two guys were kind of perched up on the top of the, the, on the hall, they spotted us, and they, you know, jumped over the, over the edge. There were two. There was a waiting speedboat, a kind of wooden motorized boat, um, next to that reefer, and they jumped in and they started chasing us. Um, basically, got within probably ten meters, and it looked like they were trying to ram us. Their captain wasn't exactly prepared for the chase, but as they were getting closer, and they saw I was on the boat, and were. You know, said something like, you know, is that a foreigner? Is that a foreigner? And as soon as they saw that there was a white face, they got a little nervous and they and they made a U-turn and left. Let's bring back in Margie from Indonesia. When Robin came back. Um, you know, we, we, we were like, okay, we, we knew that we had a great deal of material. Um, and because we had filmed and, and witnessed this fish, this slave-caught fish, being loaded onto the Silver Sea Line, which is a, a reefer ship um, that runs back and forth between Thailand and Indonesia, we then knew, okay, now we've got it. They tracked the Silver Sea Line for 15 days across the ocean to Thailand. By satellite, which might sound like they slipped some sort of tracking device onto the hole in the dark of the night, then zoomed off by speedboat. In actuality, you can track these things pretty easily through an online service. Robin and Margie knew where the main port was anyway, so they had an idea where this thing was going. When it got close, they both boarded planes and flew in to meet it. Margie came in from Jakarta, Robin came in from Yangon. And that's where we started following the trucks. Margie and Robin crammed themselves into a little Toyota truck with tinted windows and eyed the port from behind a large wall. They could see the cranes working, but not much else. Every once in a while, a truck would be loaded up and sent off, and Margie and Robin would follow it. Then we would come back, and we would do another one, and there was one night where we had two trucks, and we broke off and went in different directions with different teams, and, you know, we were eating McDonald's, and singing and I mean you know you can imagine it got it got we got a little slap happy at times yeah. because it was so boring you know <laughs> just waiting for these <laughs> trucks to go 
I was thinking how like incredibly exciting that sounds. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Everybody, um, everybody kind of thinks that we were like this really like you know high tech, really you know put together you know, surveillance team. You know, like something from the movies. But I tell people that we were more like the Keystone Cops. I mean, we were doing everything wrong. We were tailgating some of the trucks, and I mean, you know, I was shouting out in English to the driver who doesn't understand English, you know, back off, we're too close, we're too close. And he just kept, you know, going. And there were a couple of times where we lost the trucks. We were driving and we got in traffic and, you know, it was really busy and we, we just lost the trucks. And so then we had to go back and, and start over and find another truck leaving. So it was, <laughs> it was far from perfect, but, um, the, it, just, it sounds we, like there were enough of them that like you could you could stand to to lose a couple and still still have a lot to work with. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we're not exactly sure how many there are, but we we definitely there were more than a hundred over the course wow. of the four nights. I mean, this is a huge refrigerated cargo ship. But there was still a challenge, even after successfully following several of the trucks to their eventual destinations. They still hadn't nailed down a strong U.S. connection. It felt like we were just, you know, this is just falling between our fingers, basically. <laughs> but, but I mean, you did, you ended up accomplishing your goal with that, right? We did, but we didn't know that at that time. At that time, it just felt like, okay, what if this is all just going to domestic market? Right. It wasn't until you, you sort of traced... You went it to... took like three months probably to, I mean, because the only way to really make the link, because all these do- people, there's not like a really formal system in place where you can find a company and find out exactly who their suppliers are, who they're supplying to. There's, there's very little written paperwork out there. Enter Martha Mendoza. From her base in Silicon Valley, Martha started searching through bills of lading from the U.S. Customs Office. Bills of lading are the receipts that show goods that have shipped. She also started going to supermarkets and reading labels. She was visiting places like... Walmart and Albertsons and Safeway and Kroger and all the other supermarkets and standing there at the frozen seafood and looking at it and seeing what country of origin, what's the species, and what brand is it under because there's these you know brands and sub-brands and below those. And so I actually... My husband once took me on date night to Walmart to look at the seafood. One time I was with a bunch of um, fifth graders. I was driving a field trip, and I uh, stopped at Walmart, and we, we crowdsourced. I had them all get out of the car and look at the seafood with me for a little bit because um, I don't live near a Walmart. The AP then sent a reporter back to the Thai factories in the light of the day. She would knock on the doors and just say, hey, who do you guys sell to? So those also became data points for us. Piecing this puzzle together took time. The AP made sure it had at least two sources to confirm every claim about where the seafood was coming from and going to. When they had their facts straight, they started to approach the companies they wanted to name, Walmart and Cisco and Kroger, but also smaller companies. And to hit a lot of them at once, Martha went to Boston to attend the largest seafood expo in North America. The National Fisheries Institute, who we approached first with this information, put out a member alert to everybody at this conference that we were there and that we were doing something about labor abuse in Southeast Asia. And it it basically was a warning of, you know, don't talk to them, we'll talk to them. Martha approached the companies anyway, 
She also talked to Thai and Indonesian officials at the expo. In interviewing the Thai official, he he was like, oh, this used to be a problem. It's taken care of now. And then I was like, well, let me show you a picture of a man in a cage and a boat and coming into your port. And um, and then he was really taken aback. You know, he's, this, is, this is still happening? Well, we're dealing with it. The story landed on March 24th, and as you might imagine, it made an immediate impact. A few days later, Indonesian government officials traveled to Benjina, inviting the Associated Press to join. Robin went with them. Margie ended up falling ill and having to stay behind. They, um, you know, started interviewing the workers and also the people from Prusaka Benjina, which is the company the site manager, the financial officer, um, anyone they could find. So during the process of the interviews, one of the Burmese workers tells this very specific story about being marched up a hill behind the factory, handcuffed and beaten, then held for a month in a shack. That worker's interview ended, and another came in with the same story. Marched up a hill, handcuffed, beaten. Turns out the abuser was an Indonesian guy hired by the company called the Enforcer. The Thai captains could not, um, you know, they weren't going to start beating people up on Indonesian soil. They hired this guy to do it. And um, as soon as the Indonesian officials understood that, they were furious. And they were really just like, this is not safe for these people to be here. We are going to get these guys off. So at that point, there are maybe 20 Burmese slaves in the room. I think that they thought they were making the offer to these 20 men. But word spread. Pretty soon it was, you know, not 20 guys, but 30 and then 50 and then 100 and then 200. And people just coming from, you know, like places that they'd been hiding, hiding pretty much in the woods behind the factory or up in the hills. By about 10 o'clock that night, after several hours sorting through an official police filing against the enforcer, Six ships filled with Burmese slaves headed away from Benjina and toward freedom. asked each of the reporters about the moment they learned the impact of their work. First is Robin. Did you ever let yourself think that your reporting had had done this, had had freed these people? Um, yeah, I, I think I think I fully realized that. I think we all, I mean, I was in constant touch with Margie during that time. We did realize that. And I think that we expected that eventually because there, because we knew the government, we knew this minister, we knew that they would be freed. I mean, there really was never a doubt that that she would allow this to continue in our minds. It, it was so blatant. It was so insulting to her. It's the you know, it's it's the it's another country that's doing this and making her country look. We knew she would do this. But we didn't know it would happen so quickly and so spontaneously, and, and I'm sure the government didn't realize that either. It was really, that was really just um, really impressive. 
at one point, um, you know, Robin was, she was um, calling me. This is Margie. She was telling me, I think, the, the point that, that, that hit me was when she said, you know, they're, these men, they're running. They're running, literally running, and they're going back to their boats, and they're jumping over the railings, and they're throwing themselves through the windows just to grab whatever meager belongings they had. I mean, maybe they just had one change of clothes. It was just little bags, little plastic bags of things that they were bringing back. And I remember, you know, at that point, it it kind of hit me, and, you know, it, it was, you know, I had tears in my eyes. It was just, it was just a remarkable feeling to know that, you know, we had done this. And here's Martha, remembering that moment back in the U.S., when Margie called me and said, you know, they're, they're freeing the slaves, I just, it actually was pre-dawn because I'm on the other side of the world, and I don't remember this, but I, I went and woke up my um, son, who's 20, a college student, and I was like, they're freeing the slaves, and, you know, and I woke up my husband. Then I um, went out and I had to immediately begin trying to get a reaction from people in the United States, so I went out and began working, but then I came, came back and about eight in the morning, and they were like, you're so funny, you woke us all up. (laughs) Several developments have occurred since the AP's story landed in late March. In April, a congressional panel heard about the abuses in the Thai seafood industry. Their main mechanism for driving change, Martha reported, is through a three-tier ranking system put out each year. The third tier represents a blacklist and can bring sanctions. The report comes out in June. A couple weeks ago, Margie reported the first arrests of employees at the factory in Benjina. Five Thai captains and two Indonesian employees were taken into custody on human trafficking charges. And police say more could be coming. More than 300 slaves were taken from Benjina during the initial rescue. Since then, the AP has reported that nearly 600 men have been rescued from Benjina or identified to be repatriated. A couple weeks ago, the first of them, 59 Cambodians, were sent home to their families. The Burmese, as well as a few men from Laos, are still waiting. But their reunion with their families, an event that must have seemed desperately distant under the fluorescent lights of the trawler, appears now to be imminent. Thank you for listening. You can find past episodes on our website, ire.org slash podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review or a rating on iTunes. This helps new listeners find the show. If you did find us already through a subscription for today's show, you might click over to our website for more about this investigation. We have a link to the story and a link to a pretty cool interactive piece the AP has since put together on the faces of and stories behind the rescued slaves. Again, that's ire.org slash podcast. As always, if you have any questions or comments about the podcast, IRE, or anything else, please do shoot us an email. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast and can be reached at web at IRE. Dot org. Or you can reach me at Sean S, that's S-H-A-W-N-S, at IRE.org. I am your new host, 
I am with you in missing your old host, the beloved George Varney, the creator of this show, who we wish the absolute best as he starts his post-IRE career. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Shinneman. Radio. Podcast. Podcast. You might want to do that over. Okay. Podcast.